tonight. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to the book of Ruth for our last uh, time um, in this study for now. I'm sure we'll return to it over the years. Um, But if you have a Bible, we'll turn to Ruth and we'll be in chapter four. Um, But I wanted to ask you uh, a question you don't have to answer out loud, but um, I, I don't know why anyone would ever like scary movies. I, I just don't understand it. I don't know. I know some people, it's like their thing, and it's like, I'm always like terrified to watch live sports in October, because I'm like, they're just going to show a whole bunch of trailers that are going to scare me to death and my children, and I'm like, what in the world? So I have not seen a scary movie in a very long time. I know that I was a teenager once, and that was like the cool thing to do was scare yourselves, I guess, and try to look like you're macho or something. But there was this one guy, this one director, if you remember, you know what I'm talking about, he's probably still around, I just don't know. But I don't even know how you say his last name, like M. Night Shyamalan. Yes. You know what he's known for with his movies, right? Like he has these unexpected uh, endings, like completely unexpected endings, right? Like you're, you're waiting with anticipation, you're watching this movie. I think the last scary movie that I ever saw was like Sixth Sense, I think. And that was like, I mean, that's probably been out since like 1995 or something. I don't know how long ago it was out. But, um, but I remember watching that and you're like, wait, I don't want to give it away just in case if you're somehow going to go watch the scary movie. I mean, I don't really recommend it or anything. But, but I remember just being like just blown away at the end of the movie. You're like, wait, what? I can't believe it because he would hold out to the very, very end of a story and then give you this kind of unexpected uh, ending. Uh, there's some different TV shows I've watched over the years with that. Like one is This Is Us. I've watched This Is Us. I know some of you are like, why would you sit through that every week and then start crying every week? My wife looks at me every time and I'm like, no, I'm, I'm good. I got it all together over here. I'm great. Uh, and so, you know, you watch these things and you're just like, you're pulled in. And then all of a sudden there's this huge left turn. Well, in our, in our story, as we read this, I know many of you have already know the story of Ruth, but it is a remarkable turn of events. And we really, where we left off last week is also pretty, pretty remarkable. Because here we are, just to give you one last recap for this book. So by giving you just a recap every week, I'm hoping you'll remember the story for the rest of your life. Uh, But in this story, it's such a remarkable story. It's such a beautiful story of love, of of despair and and heartache. There's so much tension in the story. And yet there's this aspect of this, this person named Boaz who seems so considerate, caring, and compassionate. You see Ruth, this female uh, character who seems so, so strong and determined, and Naomi who has just been wrecked by life. And so in our story, that's what it is, right? And Ruth, and we open up in chapter one, we see a family who's, who's looking around and they're like, we have no food. There's nothing to eat here. We need, we need to be providing for ourselves. And so Elimelech, instead of what God had warned them of, the reason there was a famine in the land in the first place was because they were, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes during this time of the judges. And so sure enough, Elimelech decides to take his family. He takes his family to a land that's a, an enemy nation. I mean, this nation, we'll talk about this in a few minutes, but this nation was such a brutal nation. I mean, they had at one point, they had, they had, they had killed like 24,000 Israelites at one point. They had ransacked them. And so God had, had basically cursed this nation, this Moabite land, saying, you're not going to be allowed into the household of God for 10 generations. I mean, this, this, I, this picture of, like, of, of, of curse. And here, that's, the, that's where Elimelech is going to take his family, is to Moab. And sure enough, he does. Maybe he finds food there. Well, he does. And his, and his two sons find wives, and they marry. Ruth and Obed marry, uh, and all of a sudden, everything's great. They've, uh, Naomi has her family, and it's like all together, and, it, and her life is full. 
And then tragedy, the first tragedy strikes. Elimelech dies, her husband dies, Naomi's husband dies. And then after about 10 years of being in this land, we find out that her two sons also die, and none of them have had children. And I know we don't get this in our culture. You would be like, you know what? I mean, you're a female. You, you, in our culture, you're going to, okay, well, I guess I'm going to go get a job again. I'm going to go or, or step into the workplace. I'm going to have to step up in different areas, or I'm going to try to provide for myself. I'll just go, I'll go find work, or I'll try to find a better paying job if I need to pay more bills. And, but in that culture, family was everything, and you were so dependent on the land and the status of the clan. And so if you had no children, you had no heirs, you basically had nothing. And so here, these two women, what we find out is these two women, Naomi's, Naomi is like, well, I'm going to go back. I've heard that God has visited his people again in Bethlehem, the house of bread, which is what Bethlehem means. And so she's going to return. And Ruth says, I'm going with you. Wherever you go, I will go. Whoever, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. I will die with you. I will go. I mean, this remarkable commitment of Ruth. And so she goes, and we find out as the story goes, that's chapter one. They go and they get there just so happens to be at the time of the harvest. And so naturally, Ruth is like, well, I'm going to try to find, I'm going to find things and see if there's, we can provide for ourselves and just make it. We'll take it day by day. We'll try to, we'll try to eat daily and we'll try to just have enough food to eat daily. And so sure enough, they go and, and Ruth is like, I'm going to go to the fields. Well, already God had set and, in, and instituted a system for, for people just like Ruth and just like Naomi to be provided for. They would leave the perimeter of their fields for the sojourner, for the widow, for the poor. They were to harvest that field and to have food for themselves. And so Ruth is hoping to find favor. And so we, as we find out in chapter two, she just so happens to land on this guy whose name is Boaz. Lands on his land and Boaz quickly shows her favor. And is like, not only are you going to have the perimeter, and it's like what we see in that chapter is just like, it's like the people are just slowly dropping stuff for her to pick up. It's like they're just on accident, just dropping grain for her to pick up. And so she, she ends up with so much excess. And then we find out she's now, and this is what we looked at last week. Now she's going to, it's like, all right, the end of the harvest season. Boaz hasn't shown any initiative yet. He hasn't pursued Ruth. He's just been overly kind and gracious to this Moabite woman. And to this older lady who's past the childbearing age, um, uh, Naomi. And so Naomi, as we looked at last week, concocts this plan. I mean, it's a little shady. I'm not going to lie. We're just not going to brush over that. It seems a little shady. You're like, what is going on? And so sure enough, she concocts this plan for, for, for Ruth to go in at the, time, at, at the time of where they're trying to, they would throw up the weed at night. They would throw it up in the air and they would try to let, they would let the wind blow away the stuff that's worthless, the chaff. And they would let the grain fall and they called that the threshing floor. And so they would do this at night because the winds would pick up off the Mediterranean. And so she knows, somehow she knew that Boaz would be out at the threshing floor. And she said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and you're going to go up to Boaz. Make sure it's Boaz. Get yourself dressed, you know, get a bath. We talked about all those things last week. And then you're going to address him and you're going to, uh, and, and you just, you take this, you lie at his feet, you uncover his feet. I don't really 100% sure of the symbolism even there. But it was some kind of act in their culture that was showing something to Boaz, telling him something that I want to be under your care. Basically, she goes and she proposes to Boaz. And he says the magic words. He says yes. You know, you'd think it'd be the other way around, right? She says yes, normally in our culture, right? But in this one, in this situation, it's basically like yes, but. And there's always that but that you're never wanting to hear. And that's really where we left off in our 
a story. We leave off with this, this, it's like hitting this climax of a point in our story, but yet there's one last cliffhanger. There's one last obstacle in the way. There is another man. There's not just one man. There's now two men. There's these two people who can redeem uh, Ruth specifically and then by extension Naomi. And that's where we pick up in our story. There's some unique parts of this last chapter that we're going to deal with. But basically, if you have notes there, we're just going to kind of walk through this pa- passage, tell the story, and then, and then try to take a few lessons from it. So feel free to take notes, jot in your Bible, those kind of things as we want to walk through um, this passage. Now, I remember when I was in college, when I first met Amanda, I shared that story a little while back. There was another guy in the picture as well, by the way. And sadly, he was also like 6'6". Six, six. I'm not 6'6". Six, six. I'm more than 5'6", but I'm not 6'6". Six, six. <laughs> and he's a basketball player. He's tall and all this stuff. And so he's showing some affection towards Amanda. I just meet her. I notice her. And I'm like, all right, so I'm going to start putting myself in position. You know, guys, you're right. You're, we're good at this, right? You like, put yourself in position to be noticed as well. And so I made sure, like, oh, wait, she's at a soccer game. I could care less about soccer, but I think I'm going to go sit right in front of her and watch this game and see if I can have a conversation and all these kind of things. So we get to know each other. But there was this other guy, and I remember the tension uh, kind of each night in my head of going like, man, I don't know. I don't know. I'm going <laughs> to like competing for her. And so what we get is this tension in chapter four, because basically what we see is, is Boaz is like, all right, I will commit to do this. I will commit to marry you. I will take you in. But there is this other redeemer who's a closer kinsman than I am. I'm going to need to talk to him. I'm going to go talk to him. And he's like, I'm going to do it right away. Ruth says, I mean, Naomi says, look at chapter three, verse 18. So she replies, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And he probably didn't rest all night. They're probably just staring at the stars, like after this whole crazy proposal in the middle of the night. And so chapter four, verse one, says this. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. So if you understand, again, our culture, if you're going to do business, oftentimes you would go to the gate. This was the gathering place, kind of like a a town hall. And so this was the place where you're going to capture someone. They're going to be walking in, especially in a small town like Bethlehem. And so he goes to the gate to sit down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Now notice this. What we're going to see is this. We don't even know who this other guy's name is. It's like so-and-so. You know, it's like when you don't know somebody, you can't remember their name, and you're like, hey, brother, right? That's the church (laughs) thing, at least, right? You're like, hey, man, how's it going? Have have a good week. Like, I can't remember their name. I think they knew his name. I think it was intentionally left out. Um, and, and part of it is going to, we're going to see this in a second, but, but he leaves his name out. It's like this such and like the way it reads in Hebrew is like, so, and so, so, and so did this, you know, the redeemer, so, and so of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. All right. So come over here for a second. And he turned aside and sat down and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who was, has come back from the country of Moab, is selling. Oh, sorry, let me, let me go back to that. Then he said to the redeemer, so he's talking to the redeemer, this other near kinsman. He's a closer relative. They're, neither are brothers. Neither are brothers of Elimelech. The clan, though, within the clan, this group and collection of families that are all kind of interconnected, this man, this such and such or so and so redeemer guy, is the closer of the two. Boaz is further down the line, but he's also a redeemer. And so it says this, uh, and so he sits him down, and he says, then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, 
who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Now let me pause for a second. Most likely, this land actually probably had already been sold when they moved away. So what would happen, though, is that here's the issue. The problem is this, and we see this in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, the effects and what would happen in this culture of buying and purchasing land and providing for a widow and, and, and this whole kinsman-redeemer concept of purchasing their freedom again. I read through those last week and talked about how, you know, like someone who had sold themselves as a slave to pay for, because to provide for themselves ultimately. Like a redeemer could come in and purchase their freedom back and give them their land so they could buy land that maybe had been sold because it still was, in a sense, under Elimelech's name. But the problem is, 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 um, is Naomi is older. And so she doesn't have sons and, and sons to pass it down. And so she has no right to really buy it back. She needs a redeemer to buy that land back as well for her. And so this is what he's explaining. And so here's what he says. Interesting. I mean, you're having this conversation, the tension of this conversation. Because, you know, if you're, if you're like me and you want, you, like, you want a, a certain way, a, a conversation to go a certain way, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like you want a good, a, a favorable answer you're going you're gonna to shed light on certain things and maybe kind of not, li- you're not, you're not lying, you're not trying to be deceitful, but you're really going to emphasize certain things and maybe kind of de-emphasize other things. Or you're going to try to get the favorable answer. You're going to s- say certain details and you might ho- withhold some other details. Look at how Boaz handles this situation. So here's what he says. So remember, you know, this, this Naomi lady who has come back from country of Moab is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Verse 4. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, oh no, (laughs) he says, I will redeem it. And you're like, no, no, like, like, this is a love story too, right? Like, okay, we, we don't really care about the land. We care about Ruth and Naomi. We care about how that story of Boaz and Ruth is going to go. Like, the land's nothing. We don't care. But Boaz here, when he shares this, 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 this to this other redeemer who's going to have the opportunity, he tells him, he basically sells him on this. It's like, look, and you're like, Boaz, why are you selling him on this? Like, it makes perfect sense. It's a perfect investment. Now, again, if you're just reading this and you've read this story, you probably don't pick on this. Again, Naomi has no heirs. She has no children and no capability of giving and having offspring. Her sons have all died. She had no other grandkids or anything, so she has nothing. So if this man buys her land, it becomes his land because there's no heir to give it to because here's how the Redeemer would work. The Redeemer would purchase this land for them. They're, they're sacrificing for them, and it would benefit them. But then the negative side would, th- would be this, though. If, if she has children, right? If so, they have children, the land then it goes to her children. And so here it's perfect. It goes to him. There's no heir to spread it out. He gets all of it, and it can go to the rest of his family rather than spreading out his family and, and losing some of that. Like, this is, makes perfect sense. You're like, Boaz, what are you doing? Like, come on, man, communicate this in the right way to get the favor that you want. And he said, no, here, you redeem it if you want it. And it makes perfect sense. And it says this. (laughs) He continues. He's like, hey, this makes sense. If you want it, you can have it. 
And so sure enough, the man says, I will redeem it. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, oh, by the way, so with this land just happens to come, and look what he says. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire with it Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And so he's like, by the way, also you're going to get Ruth, this Moabite woman. Again, remember this, the view of who the Moabites were is not a favorable thing. But also, going back to what I was just explaining, now all of a sudden, now Ruth is of childbearing age. She's going to have kids. And now all of a sudden, this great deal that seems too good to be true to have this land for yourself is now going to be given to her and to her offspring, her son, the, ch- the children that you give them. And so this changes things for this man. And so here's what he says. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And we're all like, yes, this is what we wanted to hear. We want to see Ruth end up with Boaz. This is perfect. It's all setting up perfectly. This is going to be great. And so, sure enough, this man, but notice a couple of statements. We're going to look at this when we learn some lessons from this story. But notice, what, but notice how he said it. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. He's like, it's going to cost me too much. It's going to, maybe he won't even have the resources after doing something like that to be able to continue with this. I don't have it. I'm not able to. It would impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And it says in verse 7, can you imagine though, like if you're, if like Ruth and Naomi happen to be at this town hall meeting at the gate, and they're just standing by, and like Ruth's going like, I mean, who am I going to marry today? <laughs> like, am I going to end up with this guy that I've never met before, so-and-so, redeemer guy, or am I going to end up with Boaz? I know Boaz. He's strong. He's, he's, uh, he's caring. He's loving. He's compassionate. He's all that I want in a man. This is the one, and he's willing to, and you're watching, and you're like, oh, no, wait, I don't want to go with him, and so sure enough, I can't imagine what's going through both of their heads, but it says in verse 7, now this was the custom in the form of times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging, to confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. This is how I did with my father-in-law, too. I gave him my sandal. <laughs> just, just kidding. We don't do that anymore. Um, and so here, he takes off the sandal as an attesting uh, in Israel. Actually, the, the interesting thing is this. I know you read this stuff, and it's all culturally like we don't get it. Because thousands of years later, culture's totally changed. Uh, but if you read in Deuteronomy and other passages under the law, you know what would happen if someone denied, if they denied, if they denied redeeming someone, like they're the person who should be redeeming this person. Here's this widow. She has nothing. She has nothing. And you're like, sorry, I can't do it. Like for instance, this story, if Boaz wasn't in the picture, what would have happened is she could have come up to him at the town gate. The woman could taken a sandal, spit in his face <laughs> with the sandal. And you're like, holy moly. Like, but it was a showing of shame that this man wouldn't take in a widow, wouldn't take in someone that was something that God had instituted as a way to protect and provide for this woman. And so here we see this was the manner of they do it. And he says, uh, then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, verse 9, then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought into Malin. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malin, I have bought to be my wife. 
every instance we have seen Ruth's name in this book, she's called Ruth the Moabitess. Every time we see it, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite. Over and over again, it's Ruth the Moabite. And here we see that now she's going to be not just Ruth the Moabite, she is going to be Boaz's wife. She's going to be grafted in. This outsider is going to be brought into the people of Israel in marriage to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So her husband's name and Elimelech, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman." I mean, this is interesting. The same women who gathered together when Naomi returned at the end of chapter one, she returns and she's like, you ladies, as the ladies and the people gathered and they were talking about her and talking to her. And they said, you know, who, uh, who are you? Like, is that Naomi? I mean, she's changed a lot over the past 10 years, but they're like, isn't that Naomi? And remember how her response was. She says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. This is the same woman and these are the same group of people, the townspeople, saying this blessing on her and her children. Because I mean, verse 11, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses, may the Lord, here's the blessing, may the Lord bless, make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily at Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem and may your house be like the house of Paris whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And we could end this beautiful love story this way. You know, a lot of movies are going to end with this way. And you're like, and some, and like this is why some people like TV shows because it keeps going, right? Like the movie ends and you're like, oh, that's so awesome. It was so good. We like watched this on Valentine's. It was such, I mean, they, they finally, the, 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 like, whew, like you can take a deep breath. They've, they've made it. They ended up marrying. You could kind of end there. And if you're like me, I love the ending of, like, for instance, The Masters today. I'm pretty pumped. I know there's, like, a three-shot lead, but you never know. It's The Masters, back nine on The Masters. Things can change quickly uh, in a sporting event. But uh, I'm not going to name names, but I've been to several sporting events where, you know, it's like it might be a little close at the end of the game, but you're kind of like, man, there's a lot of traffic in Atlanta, or there's a lot of traffic in Charlotte. Like, we probably should go home. Like, let's not, like, wait, let's, let's just miss the ending. I've heard that someone missed, like, one of the greatest endings of a Super Bowl in history. <laughs> as, as he laughs, I, I said I was going to name names. If you just wouldn't have chuckled, I wouldn't have told on you. Um, <laughs> and, um, but it, it's sporting event. But, like, one sporting event, though, in somewhat recent history as well, uh, that, I mean, I love sports, and one of, the, one of the greatest comebacks, one of the most uh, craziest endings was when the Heat had LeBron, uh, Wade, and Bosch, and some of you are looking at me like, I don't know what you're talking about, like, who are these people? Uh, but the, they played for the Miami Heat. I mean, this is like super team, like unbelievable super team. There, it's game six of the finals. They're down 3-2, and they were down by like five points or something like that towards the very end of this game, and all of a sudden, there's these crazy events, and then Ray Allen hits the shot, but a lot of people had already left the arena. 
they thought the game was over. It was over, and so they left the arena. And like people like banging on the doors trying to come back in as they're listening to it. And it's like, sorry, no re-entry. So it's like sometimes we can end up something here and we're like, wait, is there more? You know, or like, are you ever the people when, I haven't been to the movies in forever, so I'm not one of those people, <laughs> but, but you know, you're sitting in a movie and you're like, all right, so I wonder if there's going to be anything after the credits start, and like, all of a sudden there's like these funny lines or different things, or there's like a whole new scene. You're like, what happened? It's like an alternate ending or something. Well, here we get a little glimpse more beyond just, oh, they married and everything was happily ever after. So look with me to the very end, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord, notice this, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, gave her conception for 10 years. She could not have a child while she was in Moab. Neither her or her sister, they were childless. You'd wonder, is God against us? Why can't we have children? But if you remember, this was what God had warned his people. He had said, listen, if you wander away from me, if you, if you, don't, put, if you don't repent and put your hope in me and, and you start worshiping other gods, famine will happen, you won't have food, and you won't have children. And this is exactly what happened to this family, and now they've returned, and God has provided them food. He's answered that. The Lord visited. Again, this is the two things we see in this book. The Lord, where the Lord is directly involved. He is involved in all of it. We've seen it all the whole time. But in these two instances, he's directly involved. He provides them food. He, the Lord has visited his people. We see it in chapter 1. Here we see the Lord gave them a child. They bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. I mean, these same women who who looking at bitterness, like these same people looking on Naomi in a different light, now they're like, man, may God bless you. He has given you a Redeemer. His name may be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, this Moabite woman, this daughter-in-law who loves you, who is, notice this statement right here, who is more to you than seven sons. Now, the seven is the number of completion. Very specifically, why I married on 7707. Uh, you know, if you're going to be a pastor, it's like the seven is the number, right? So we went all in on that one. Oh, seven, oh, seven, oh, seven at six o'clock. Not sure why we didn't see seven. It's like, why didn't we do seven? I don't know. Whatever. We didn't do it. We didn't go all in. Okay. Maybe we just went partially in. Um, this number of completion. Man, I, I, if you've ever watched a documentary on some of the things on the, the one child policy in China, because sons were so important in our society, in the mindset of people. They're s- strong, they're going to provide, they're going to carry the name of the family. And so in China, they're like, well, they, they cast this vision of like, where there, there is, you know, we, you can't, um, th- like there's not going to be enough food. This is the way they sold it to the people. Like, there's not going to be enough food for the people. Like, like, like if we continue our population rate, so here's what you're going to do. And they're going to go with a strict policy of a one-child policy, and what the effects of that brought to the country of China was, is remarkable. They've changed most of those laws to this day now. Uh, my daughter was born during that, chi- I mean, it never even hit me until we watched the documentary. It was like, wait, she was under that policy when she was born. And so when you look in the, people would be like, oh, I mean, there's probably a lot of a lot of girls available for adoption in China because everyone wants a male, and you're like, 
there weren't many boys. And so what <laughs> they were doing was they would, they would just kill or abandon or, or uh, um, completely abort their, their boys. You, or, or the boys that were, or sorry, there, there weren't many girls available. The boys were in there, but the boys were all, because they were, they were special needs, had some deformities, different things like that. They weren't the perfect son, the perfect family. And so, no, we got to have a son. And so, and in this culture, sons meant, I mean, we, we've seen it as we've read it. Sons mean everything. And so the thought of having seven sons is remarkable. I mean, think what you can accomplish with seven sons in this culture with a field and with land and, and developing it and, and growing it and all these things. And, and, he's, and, and they're saying, listen, God has blessed you more. And listen to what he says, who is more to you? This daughter-in-law, this Moabite woman is more to you than seven sons because she has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him its name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. And you're like, well, that's a weird name. But the Obed name is important because, as we see in the next line, is he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And you might be like, what's going on in this story? Because, you see, when this was written and told, this is told after David. This story is told with no, the knowledge of David. Now, it happened before David, it hap- obviously. Um, but the story was, was told and cast. And the reason it meant so much to the people of Israel was because they now could see what was going on, that they had no idea was happening. Here, in the midst of all of this cre- crazy story, God had a plan in place. And I want to just cover a few quick lessons before we conclude today. And one is this, and I want you to see this in this story, the bigger picture of this story. But the first one is this. The grace of God is barrier-breaking. The grace of God is barrier-breaking. I mean, when I think of all the obstacles that were in the way for us to adopt our daughter, there was a lot of obstacles there's a cultural obstacle. I remember the first time I went overseas, or the second time I went overseas for mission, a mission trip, and I went to the, the country of Haiti. Uh, it's a beautiful country and, and all this stuff. And I remember, I mean, I, I tried to learn Creole, like crash course cl- Creole in like a month or something like that. And I get over there, and I'm like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to connect with these people, and I'm just going to you know, show off my, my quick knowledge of cram course Creole. And I get there, and they just start looking at me funny, and they start laughing. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I thought I said the right thing, and they, they, say, like, they would say it, and I'd hear them say it, and I'd be like, I'd say it back to them, they'd laugh. I'm like, I just said what you said, right? And I, like, I guess my, my southern accent or something like, just wasn't coming across well. And you think, though, that that would be a barrier. But if you've ever been to a culture like that, if you just show love, if you extend grace, you show kindness, it goes right through that, that, that cultural barrier, that language barrier. You, you, you can go right through it. I mean, think of all the barriers that were in this story. I mean, even go back, he mentions a few people. I mean, it really, some of this is like scandalous grace. Think about the people that are in the line of Christ, the genealogy. I mean, you would think of like a royal line. I mean, I've watched movies as well where it's like, you know, they're trying to like get the perfect genetic code and to have the perfect person because you want to have these perfect people. And you would think that Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, would have this like perfect, beautiful, clean line to, his thro- to the throne of David. In fact, it's completely opposite. When you read Matthew 1, you see some scandal in his family heritage. 
when you start looking at his genealogy, you know, we all have that kind of crazy uncle or something in our family. I got multiple of them <laughs> um, on both sides somehow. Again, this is a podcast. If you listen to this, I love you. Um, <laughs> man, I'm like, sometimes man, I let my lips go too fast. Um, <laughs> like, is there someone who could edit this? Yeah, thanks. No, but in all seriousness, right? I mean, we all have those extended relatives where you're like, man, that guy's crazy. You're like, who invited him again <laughs> to, the, to the Thanksgiving table kind of thing? I mean, we all have those things. If you look at the line of Jesus in Matthew 1, we don't have to look at it. We can see part of it right here in this passage. But first you have Tamar. Tamar, again, we dealt with a little bit of like shadiness last week with chapter 3. I don't really want to go more into detail, but Tamar basically was a childless widow, very similar to what we see here. And here in this family, Judah and his kids should have taken her in, and then, and she did, sure enough, but then that son, that son also died, the one that actually redeemed her, Tamar, and then all of a sudden, in some scandal and different things, she deceived Judah, pretended to be a prostitute, and slept with Judah, and they have two children, one named Perez, we just read the name Perez earlier, and we see it right there, if you look at chapter 18, now these are the generations of Perez, Perez, this person from Tamar, who, who slept with her own father-in-law in this way and has these children, or Perez ends up, Tamar does. And then we have Rahab, the prostitute. She's this prostitute, but here's the cool thing. As, even as a prostitute, maybe the men who were coming into, into her and coming into her business or whatever, she was hearing about Yahweh. She was hearing about those things so that when the 12 spies, when they came and they were in Jericho, she protected them. And God, and, and then what happened was God provided for uh, Rahab, and she's the prostitute. Now, something that just I, I never really thought about. I'm like, I've read the genealogy. Who knows how many times as I've read scripture? But it hit me for the first time this week. Rahab, in this story, she's this Canaanite woman. But if you if you look at the if you look at the um, Matthew one genealogy, we find out this is this is Boaz's mom. Boaz, is, I mean, here Boaz ends up because of this prostitute woman marrying uh, his, his, who would be his father. And then you get to Ruth the Moabitess. She's, she's a Moabiter, a Moabitess. She's this outsider. How is this outsider being let in? It's because of God's grace. His grace. This 10 generations, remember what I was saying earlier, 24,000 Israelites were killed by the Moabites, and God had cursed his people. If you, want to, if you want to read the genealogy here in chapter, chapter 4, verse 18 through 22, you have 10 generations, not to be mistaken. Here, God is showing us that His grace is greater than any barrier. It can break through the hardest of hearts. It can work through the most unique and weird and odd situations like the ones we even see here. Through this outsider, this Moabite woman, God would give a child who would lead to the hope of the world. Here's the second point I want to I emphasize here as we wrap up is this. Though we are unfaithful, God is faithful. Though we are unfaithful, God continues to be faithful. I mean, think about this. In the time of the judges, while the people of Israel were doing what was right in their own eyes, during this time, it seems like there's just nothing good going on. The people of God are being unfaithful to him. Elimelech says he, he 
turns his back on the promised land and says, I'm going to go to Moab because that's where I'm going to find rest and security and, and things and the things outside of God's blessing. I think that I'm going to go outside of it. How often do we do that? How often do we go outside of God's blessing? And saying, well, God, I, but I thought this would be better. I thought this pursuit of this thing in this career would make me happy and fulfilled. Or I thought this relationship would make me feel better and all these things. We continue to be unfaithful. I mean, when you read the story of Hosea, an, an, it's a remarkable prophet where God says, here, I want you to go marry a prostitute. And you're like, wait, what? This is my assignment? Can I just go to Nineveh like Jonah had to do? No, you're going to marry a prostitute, and you're going to do this. You're going to pursue someone who's unfaithful, and she's going to prove to be unfaithful to you. But here's what I want you to do, Jose. I want you to go buy her back again after you've already got her once, and she leaves you again, goes back to that life. You go back after her. Listen, that is the picture we see in Scripture. We're the unfaithful ones. We're the unworthy ones. We're the ones who don't deserve it. Ruth doesn't deserve this. Naomi doesn't deserve this. Boaz doesn't deserve this. None of these people deserve it. Listen, the people of Israel especially don't deserve his grace. And yet, while they're unfaithful, God continues to be faithful. He's working in the details behind the scenes, and they have no clue what's going on. But is, here's, the, here's what I want to emphasize before we get to the third point is this. But here, this is where we find a great and wonderful Redeemer. You see, redemption in what is found in Christ alone. Here, in the natural sense, in the, in the human sense, Naomi and Ruth experience this redemption of, of being an outsider, being a castaway, being a person who's, who's looking for food and, and anything that to just live. And God gives them Boaz to come into their life and to redeem them. But all of that was doing something bigger than for Ruth and Naomi. There was bigger things happening than Ruth and Naomi. And this is why this is so important, because you say, wait, this whole story led us to what it says here. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. David is going to be the king. I mean, they're in a season of judges, and they were wanting a king. And here's the picture of this great king. The greatest king of Israel was David. But David, what we find out in Scripture in the Old Testament is he was just pointing us. He was just going to be in the line of the Messiah. It was continuing that line all the way from Abraham to Noah to Judah, the line of Judah, even as weird as that story is of Judah and Tamar. And as we get to then God promised land and to Jericho, and here's this prostitute lady in this having her business here and, and in Jericho in the walls, and then God sends 12 spies saying, you're going to go in there, and he, she protects them, and God protects her from the destruction that was coming. And she marries and has a son named Boaz. And Boaz then has eventually this unique situation with Ruth, has a son, and they name him Obed, and this continued the line. And that line continued to where the prophecy or this blessing that the, that the people, these ladies in the community were blessing on Naomi would come true. Verse 15, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. This child it was going to be a blessing to all people because through Obed to David and continuing that line is going to come one who's going to enter humanity. He's going to be an alien, a 
foreigner. He's coming from heaven's throne, and he's going to invade it in Christ. And Christ comes, and he is the one that this story is pointing us to. He's the redeemer. He's the one who's faithful when we're unfaithful. He's the one who saves us while we were yet sinners. Christ would die for us. This is the story of the cross that we think about as we look at this Passion Week and we consider what God has done to redeem us. You see, this is the third point, is you never know what God could do through the story of redemption in your life as well. You never know what God could do through the story of redemption in your life. You see, these characters had no clue what God was doing through them. How their story would impact generation upon generation upon generation of people, pointing them to Christ the ultimate redeemer. But here's the question, what about you? What about me? How can my story and how can your story, the story of your life, the redemption maybe that's happened in your life, and I hope it has, how can that be an impact and an imprint on the world? How can we make a difference? Again, it starts with our redeemer. He has paid the price. He has paid it all. He fully pays our debt. Think about this. I mean, Think of, just go back to chapter 4 one more time. Look at what the Redeemer so-and-so said. Verse 6, Then the Redeemer so-and-so said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Listen, we don't have a God. We do not have a God who says, you know, this is going to impair me. I'm, I'm, I'm going to experience pain and suffering. I'm going to experience bru- brutality. I'm going to be nailed to a cross. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take a ding to me. It's going to hurt. It's going to cost me too much. Are we not thankful that we have a Redeemer who's not like this man, this unnamed person, yet we have Christ, the King of kings, the name above all names, that He would come and He would say, I will give of my life for you. I will take whatever it costs to give you and to purchase your freedom, to pay the price for your sin, to cover you with His own blood. And if you haven't received his redemption, do so. Ask him to cover you with his righteousness. Plead with him. Ask him for forgiveness. Say, by faith, I trust in you. Help me, Father. Save my soul. But here's the question for those of you who are redeemed. Listen, we have all that we need to carry on this mission. We have the resources. See, Boaz had the resources. But Boaz also had the determination, just like our Savior had, the determination to go all the way to the cross to pay the price for our sins. Boaz had the determination, he had the resources to redeem Ruth and Naomi. Listen, here's the thing for us. We have resources. We should have the determination to cast and to continue this theme of redemption through our lives This is our mission at at Redeemer Community Church. Why we even named the church Redeemer? Because this is the story, all of Scripture, from Genesis, all the way to the very beginning of Genesis, especially in Genesis 3, where man sins, and the sin is cast a curse on all of humanity. But yet, in the midst of all the chaos, God has a story of redemption. The Redeemer is going to come, and He already came in our history. And He's paid that price for us. And now He's given us a mission. Man, this is what we're called to do. We have all that we need to carry on this mission. We have His Spirit indwelling us. We have the knowledge of the gospel. So here's what we do. We follow Jesus and we make Him known. We share Him. We let this know. This should be the aim of our church. This should should be a model of us. We start start the distractions of this world, the things of this world start to, to pale in comparison to this mission. Because you and I have 
no idea what God could be doing through the story of your redemption in our life, in your life. Who knows? Who knew the person who shared the gospel with you, how that would impact? Think about just sharing the gospel with one person, and that one person puts their faith in Christ. How that changes a family, that could lead to changing a community, that can, cha- that can lead to changing the whole world. The trajectory of someone's soul for all of eternity is impacted by our response to saying, okay, I want to join God in his, his, his mission of redemption. We must share it. We have to. Because the lives changed by the, are changed forever by the gospel. This is the story of Ruth. It's a story of redemption. It's a story that points us to a greater redeemer, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. He's one who's worthy of it all. Let me pray uh, as we consider these things. Father, you are really remarkable. It is remarkable to think how determined you are before the foundation of the world. You had a plan in place, uh, Father, for redeeming mankind. Thank you for the price that you paid to purchase our freedom. Thank you for that gift of grace. It is all of Christ. We are are so unfaithful. It's not on our worthiness. None of us can deserve it. None of us can earn it. There's no way to earn your grace. There's no way to earn your love. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, even in the midst of our unfaithfulness. God, we are desperate desperately in need of you. So Father, as we even go into this, this important week in, 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 the, in our calendars each year, this, what we call Passion Week, as we think of the, the passion of the Christ, of, of Christ, of his coming and living the life that we should have lived and dying the death that we should have paid but could never pay, you take our place. Thank you for the gospel, this wonderful good news. I pray that we would be your ambassadors, your we had live on mission, this story of redemption, using this story of creation, this redeeming love story that we see in Ruth, and that we'd share this unique story, the story of, really, we look at creation, the story of redemption to the world around us. There are billions of people all over the world who don't even know who Jesus is. They don't know the word redeemer. They don't understand what, that they don't even know that they need saving. I pray that you'll raise up people to be your ambassadors. God, help us. We cannot do this on our own. We need you. It is all of Christ. It's not us. Help us to get out of the way and join in your mission. And may we display and proclaim you to our last breath on earth. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.